I'm Julie Swenson, Managing Director of Forward Theater Company in Madison, Wisconsin. And I'm Mike Fisher, Milwaukee-based theater writer and dramaturg. I'm Jen Uphoff Gray, Founder and Artistic Director of Forward Theater Company. And this is Theater Forward, a twice-monthly conversation about theater from a local, regional, and national perspective. From Madison to Manhattan, we're excited to share insight into our own company while exploring issues surrounding theater in the Midwest and around the country. Welcome to episode 83 of Theater Forward. 83, fantastic. (laughs) So for this episode, we figured we'd talk about the water cooler topic that's been occupying us and many of our professional colleagues over the past few weeks, the scintillating subject of copyright law and performance licensing. Well, we're going to make it scintillating. That is exactly right. So this perennial topic is back in the news, thanks to two high-profile scandals, one involving the blockbuster show Hamilton and the other involving a staged concert based on the hit Netflix show Bridgerton. So first, we'll just do a super quick little recap of those two stories. For those who might have missed them, we'll share some links in the show notes for deeper dives for those who are interested. But um, Julie, why don't you tell us about the Bridgerton? Story. Well, uh, yes, this is this is um, a little bit of social media run amok. Um, uh, the world is different in our TikTok, Facebook, Instagram, fill in the blank, Snapchat world. So these lovely women um, on TikTok were doing some some cheeky, fun Bridgerton, uh, you know, scenes and um, uh um, songs and and just having fun with Bridgerton. And that actually is okay in our world of intellectual property. Okay, kind of. What happened then is that it got great reviews on TikTok. So they decided to do a show, do a Bridgerton show, charge tickets, have people come and see them live. And as we will discuss going forward, is you have to get the rights for these kind of things. You can't just move your TikTok fun thing into a show where people pay and you get money for it. Yeah, so we will we will come back to that topic. Um, yes. But Mike, do you want to give us just a little snapshot of what went on with Hamilton recently? Well, the, the thumbnail of that involves a church in McAllen, Texas, uh, down near the border, uh, that... Even though Hamilton's not being licensed yet for amateur productions, wanted to take advantage of part of the fair use doctrine in American copyright law that does allow for uh, pieces of a production to be used within a church service. And the good people at Hamilton, um, I think, thought that that's what was going to happen with this. Lo and behold, um, the whistle's blown on them, uh, on, on the church, I should say, that what's actually going on is they're live streaming this thing. They sold tickets for it. Um, and they were advertising it in advance. And and they not only did the entire musical and outside of a church service, but then they decided to change a few of the lyrics in ways that talk about um, Alexander being saved by Jesus and um, had some anti-LGBTQ messaging. Um, and so the Hamilton folks said, guess what? That is not OK. Um, and um, it, it, when they first heard that this was going on, they, they out of the goodness of their hearts had even been willing to allow for a second performance before they knew about the lyric changes. Um, just to sort of say, we'll give them the benefit of the doubt. It's a church. They don't really know what they're doing. So that a second performance happens with all of this same nonsense in it. And now Hamilton is looking very seriously at taking additional uh, legal action because they were really taken advantage of by by people they were trying to help. 
So, so maybe we'll just start this conversation with um, a, a quick little summary as, you know, professional theater producers of, of how you get permission to do material, um, just the, the nutshell version, because um, it's really important to understand that. So, um, so we're a professional company, and the way that we get permission to do a play is we apply for a license, which conveys the, the professional rights to put on a performance, and it involves um, advances and royalties that are guaranteed to the author, the person who created the material that we want to um, produce and, you know, make money off of. Um, and so, you know, that can either go, if it's a newer play, which we frequently do, it's it's through conversations directly with that playwright and their representation, their agents. Um, if it's a more established play, typically it's being licensed through one of the major licensing houses, Dramatist Play Service, Concord Theatricals, et cetera. So um, you apply for rights, you get permission, and then the permission says, yes, you may do this play or this musical, and here's the conditions that you have to abide by, um, and and here's what you have to pay us, and then we're off to the races. Fantastic, um, and it's usually involving a percentage of the box office take, a guaranteed minimum percentage, and then you pay above that. Um, if you are an amateur or academic company, um, you also have to get the rights. Uh, usually, it's more of a sort of flat fee, much more affordable. Um, plays and musicals typically get licensed to those kinds of theaters um, after they've kind of had their professional run. You sort of make the, make the money on those um, percentage of royalties, uh, a percentage of box office uh, productions, and then and then you start licensing it um, for other uses. Um, and sort of related to it, if you want to create a new property that's an adaptation of something, so sort of touching on the Bridgerton example, um, you have to have a license um, agreement uh, with whoever created the original material. So, for example, we commissioned a play, oh, it was in our uh, eighth season, going back now, um, that was an adaptation, a stage adaptation of a book. And so the first thing we had to do was get a, a, a contract with the novelist saying, yes, you have permission to um, adapt this into a play. And then we did a contract with the playwright to write the play. And, you know, and then they both benefited financially from the ultimate production that was created. So that's kind of the baseline. And one thing, you know, just to sort of tie this to what we we do it here at Forward that I think a lot of folks don't understand is that um, it's not just getting permission to perform something and paying, you know, a fee, an appropriate fee to the person who created it. You're also signing a contract that says you're not going to change it. Can I really read again? Yeah. I, I just pulled up a license of one of our plays. This yeah. is always like the second line, the second yep. line says licensee shall not nor authorize or permit any party to in any way alter change delete from or add to the play or any part thereof or interpolate any addition into the play without the prior written approval of the licensor that's really specific that is that's bowl, boilerplate language it's in every contract, whether yes. you are a school or a major regional theater or a Broadway show, right. you agree to that. And you have to have the permission of the right. If you want to do their play, then you have to do it the way that they wrote it. And um, a lot of folks don't don't know that or don't understand that. And and I will say part of that is that I part of the reason for that is that for most people, their experience of how theater gets put together 
is any involvement that they might have had as like a high school student. And I, I know a lot of schools um, that don't know this information and will happily make changes to what they are presenting and usually don't get caught because it's, you know, it would be a lot of work to follow up on all of those. Right. Um, but I, you know, I'm sometimes surprised by the number of patrons at our theater. I mean, we do contemporary plays here. Um, usually things written within the last couple of years, not surprisingly, um, our plays have a lot of profanity. Many of them have a lot of profanity in them. And it's, it's, I mean, it's reflecting how people talk out in the world. Um, we try to be um, sensitive to that in our programming and, you know, to, to pick plays where the profanity feels intrinsic and important to the characters and to the story. If it's, if it feels really gratuitous, it's probably in a play we're not that interested in doing, but there's, I mean, we just did Russian troll farm. There's a lot of swearing in that play there it and is. it feels very authentic to the characters in that play, the way that they would talk in real life. Um, but, you know, we'll sometimes hear from an audience member who who very sincerely wants us wants to know why we didn't take that out. And and then, you know, I always see that as an opportunity to, you know, sort of it's an educational opportunity to explain, well, we didn't take it out because we can't. We can either do the play or we cannot do the play. And we thought this is a play worth doing and doing it means it has that profanity, but it's not an option to to take that language out or to replace it with you know, darns and hex. Um, it's not, you know, it's not an option to just cut things if it runs a little longer than we would like it to. Um, and I think it would be really beneficial to our field if more people, both who work in the field and who are patrons coming to shows, understood that and 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 knew that that's that's the law. Right. And the the, the bottom line with these with these two instances that we are um, highlighting is that. At the end of the day, artists need to be paid for their work. And if you are making money on on someone's work, you owe them money. And that that's what's happened with both of these instances, is that the the people who created the original work aren't getting um, it's not actually their work in in the case of the church. Um, But, you know, they're they're not. these artists are not benefiting from other people going out and, and making money on what they have created. You know, there's a statement, you know, so the dramatist guild is um, a, a sort of union protecting writers and um, they have been uh, very vocal on um, situations like this and, and really making the point that it, it would be easy with both of these particular incidences to, to say, Oh, but you know, the creators of Hamilton, Netflix, they're fine. They don't need, they don't need the money from this, you know, this, these poor TikTok artists from this poor church. These are the rules that protect emerging artists, most importantly. Um, the folks who really can't afford to be taken advantage of in this way. And so um, it's really important that you legally follow up on these high profile cases, because that's ultimately, I think, what protects the emerging artists who are so vital to our field. Mm-hmm. And you, you can't just take someone's work. And, you know, when I think about the Bridgerton incident, it really is. It makes me so sad because this seems like a, a situation that could so easily have been wonderful and beneficial to all parties involved, including the audience. You know, it's it's this series of books. They've been turned into this hit Netflix show. 
these artists do these fun songs inspired by it that they put out on TikTok. They get super popular. Um, they win a Grammy for it. It's, you know, it's, it's charming. It's over it's girl from the North country. Ah! Yes. <laughs> it, I mean, it's really, it's right. fantastic. And it's fantastic. John would have loved this kind of thing. Right. And then they but wanted right. to do right. Then they wanted to do this concert and they wanted to charge ticket. They want to sell tickets for this concert. And from everything that I've read, and again, we'll link to more in-depth articles. Netflix essentially reached out to them and said, great, do it. Here's a reasonable licensing agreement. Because it's not just about Netflix. It's also about Julia Quinn, who wrote all of those books, who created those characters and those stories. And I'd say this is someone who, I've been reading Julia Quinn's books for like 20 years. They are so fun. I love a good romance on stage. This is why I love Lauren Gunderson so much, you know, um, I think she writes charming and thoughtful and engaging stories and they became a successful TV show and she deserves to be compensated for creating that world. And the okay. fact that Netflix actually reached out to these creators and said, we'll give you a license. We'll act, we'll actually let you do this thing that frankly, it's not really okay that they were proceeding with doing it without having first sought permission. But, and that, that they or whoever their legal representation were um, did not take that opportunity. It's so, I don't know, I'm just flabbergasted by it, honestly. It's, you know, this is, I mean, not to, not to rehash a topic we discussed in a prior podcast, but to briefly rehash a topic we discussed in a prior <laughs> podcast. This is why I have such a problem with social media, where you have a $50 billion annual transfer of revenue from the artists to create work to these monopoly platforms for which these artists are not compensated. And that's wrong. And as we continue to think through what's going to happen with platforms like Facebook or Meta, whatever he wants to call it now. One of the things that needs to happen if that company gets broken up is that there is a better way of compensating the artists who are helping to uh, feather the bottom line um, of companies like that. It's just, it's just not right. But this is an example <clears throat> of how that could have actually worked out because it, it you know, the, these songs on TikTok did generate more viewers for Bridgerton, mm -hmm. which does create more, um, uh, royalties for the person who wrote the book, um, more book sales and all of that. And these artists who created these songs had an opportunity to get a proper license and go make some money, um, as emerging artists. And they threw either, a, a, a lack of understanding or a willful disregard of the law, um, didn't have that opportunity, but this, this is a place where that sort of social media grassroots fan base that was created could have been monetized to support those artists um, if it had been properly, you know, followed through. And not to disregard your, your point, Mike, but to say that this no, was no, a situation no. where it could have actually. We agree. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and to the Hamilton one, I mean, that, that really connects. First of all, you can't just, it reminds me, remember back in, I think it was 2016, uh, a high school in Canada, you know, this is when Hamilton was at peak hysteria. Um, they wanted to make a case for how they should be the first high school to get a license to produce Hamilton. Keep in mind, here we are in 2022. It still hasn't been licensed for schools, right? Because it's having its commercial life first, as is right. typical and appropriate. Um, they did fully mounted, fully costumed numbers from Hamilton, like the bulk of the show, and they streamed it online without permission to do that. And 
again, you look at this isn't about blaming those high school students who were so enthusiastic and wanted to share their love of it. It's, you know, why why did their teachers do this? Why did they not understand? Why was there no adult in the theater department, in that school, in the in that community, a parent of a student who who knew enough about this topic to go hang on a second? It's not actually legal to do this and it's not okay. It's not ethically okay. Um, I think one of the reasons it gets confusing for people that aren't in the business or aren't lawyers or don't think about this a lot is that the fair use doctrine does have fairly broad exceptions. So for example, if this were a parody, if you'd wanted to do a parody of Hamilton and even use the word Hamilton in the, in the title of your parody, that is completely covered and you can make money on it. And that is okay. As long as it's a genuine parody and not as in the situation in Canada, basically a replication. Um, if you want to do, you know, the stuff that with Bridgerton, you know, when, when you start out with just doing fan tributes of that kind, which are not being monetized, completely okay. I think the hard part, you know, if you are doing a parody or in some way transforming a work, and I'm sure the creators of this Bridgerton, um, you know, fan musical would claim that they are not just adapting, but in some way genuinely transforming a work. That's where the line gets sort of hard to draw. I mean, there's a case in front of the U.S. Supreme Court right now involving Andy Warhol's estate um, because of uh, Andy Warhol's, uh, you know, transformed photographs taken of prints in the classic Andy Warhol way. I mean, the colors were changed and, and it was it was sort of became a parody of uh, uh, of the cult of personality and what that can do to people. Um, the Vanity Fair ran that as part of uh, on the cover of an issue. And the, and the question is, is there enough difference between the photograph that Newsweek originally made money on and the photographer who deserves rights for that photograph of Prince and what Andy Warhol did with it? Think about an Andy Warhol soup can to take a more obvious example. Is that an infringement on Campbell's trade uh, trademark or not? Obviously, the answer has been no, but it gets to be a very, very fine line. How much original content in terms of what you are doing with a work has been introduced into what you're doing so that it's genuinely um, different. And I think the two cases we have, the Bridgerton case and especially the Hamilton case, the answer is there's not enough of a difference between what you are seeing in these in these monetized uh, efforts to exploit the work of the original creators and the work of those original creators. But it can be hard. And I think when people don't know the don't know about how that works. And also when you have cases that can go all the way to the Supreme Court because the line is so murky, you can see the potential challenges that that the fair use doctrine um, raises for these kinds of issues. Yeah, you know, I, I, I actually, I wrote down um, something, uh, the Dramatist Guild put a statement out when that high school Hamilton came out in 2016 that I thought just so succinctly explained why this is important. So I might just read that real quick. They wrote, authors of dramatic works, including playwrights, librettists, lyricists, and composers, own their copyrights, but very few dramatists writing for the theater make a living at it. In exchange for retaining ownership and control of their words and music, they have foregone the benefits of unionization enjoyed by other groups of artists, like directors, designers, choreographers in the theater, as well as TV and film writers. Dramatists have sacrificed to keep control of their work, and so consequently, their copyrights mean a great deal to them. When their work shows up in unauthorized productions or on YouTube videos, it's not just a matter of lost revenues. It's an infringement on the very nature of the dramatist's authorship and a violation of their right to control their artistic expression. 
even the non-commercial public use of their work by well-meaning fans, either on the internet or in amateur productions in their communities, can damage a show's value in various markets, and it's a copyright violation under most circumstances. Most importantly, it undermines an author's prerogative to decide when, where, and how their work will be presented. Again, that's most circumstances, not all. And I think that's yeah. the problem here. I mean, I don't like the fact that David Mamet chose to shut down a Milwaukee production of Oleana that had Carol, the student in that two-hander, uh, played by somebody who was uh, gender fluid. Yeah. I mean, does he have the right to do it? I mean, you know, if we were going back to the early part of this uh, last century, would J.M. Barry have the right to shut down people that didn't implement every one of his exhaustive stage directions? Um, does the Albia state have the right to say that Nick in um, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf has to be played by somebody that's white? Does the Arthur Miller estate have the right? The answer is yes to all these questions, by the way. Does the <laughs> Arthur Miller have the right? A state have the right to say that um, in a production of All My Sons, you can't have some of the characters being played by black uh, black actors. And to me, even though technically that is at least as copyright law is interpreted within the purview of those particular estates, it's wrong. And it doesn't to me, represent, I mean, these are much harder cases, I think, than the ones we started this podcast with. Mm -hmm. And in those cases, you know, I want to say, look, art is about everything in art is stolen. You know, you look and you see this, it's easier to see this in literature. Somebody like Ali Smith, who to me is long overdue to win a Nobel uh, for, for literature, wouldn't exist if she didn't steal in all the ways she shamelessly does. And the way most modernists like her do in terms of what they write. The issue is, are you transforming it enough so that it is genuinely your own and in dialogue with rather than just taking from the original. And I would argue in things like the Mammoth example or the Albie example or the Miller example, whether you agree or disagree with those kinds of casting choices, that to me represents the sort of genuine dialogue that is healthy for theater and for those plays and ought to be permitted within copyright law, but it isn't. Right. And I, I mean, I, cause I agree with you. I think that all those examples, Mike, uh, you know, I, I agree they should be allowed. The whole point is if it's a great piece of art, it can, um, uh, it can withstand people experimenting with it. Right. And that in terms of production choices, casting, that sort of thing. But I also, it's, it is, the, if, if it's a living playwright, they've got the right to say no. And to say this, this changes the piece of art that I created in a way that I'm not comfortable with. Um, and if the person producing it doesn't want to do it the way the playwright wants it, do another play. Write a new play inspired by that play, because then it's yours, right? It's, it's fine to be inspired by. It's fine to write John Proctor's The Villain instead of doing another production of The Crucible, right? Um, write, you know, do, do your new thing. But I think that... Uh, Artists get artists get to say how how their work gets done, at least as long as they're alive. Artists should get to say how their work well, is done, and whether Mike, or not we agree with it. Yeah, I, I mean, Mike uh, uh, just highlighted some of the states that right. are taking over. You know, yeah. states. A state should have to get over themselves. That's my non legal opinion. <laughs> well, David Mamet should have to get over himself. I mean, he was agreed wrong to but, shut that production down. Period. Well, let's just stop doing his plays, and then it's fine. <laughs> that was I mean, a lot of plays. You can choose not to do that. Yeah. Yeah. But but I think I think what we're saying. We might not agree with some of these, you know, that, uh, you know, some of the, the hardcore uh, uh, directives that Mamet gives. I might not agree with it, but is it his right 
It absolutely is. And do we, and do we as a licensing company who has chosen to do a play of his, I mean, we haven't, but you know, if you want to do a play, here are, here are the things put forth in your license. And it's very clear. And if you don't want to do it, don't do that play. But, but you can't pick and choose and you can't decide I'm going to follow this, but not that. But yeah. the question is, I mean, yes, legally, that is that is absolutely right. Mamet had the right to shut that down. The question, I think, in terms of what we all believe in as artists is, should that be, again, we're talking about something that's a little murkier than Bridgerton and, or Hamilton. Should that right. be the way it is? I mean, if the late, great Jonathan Miller is right when he said in subsequent performances that every single production is different from every other, there's no such thing as an original, then every interpretation of a mammoth play on every single stage is messing with, in some ways, just because of the way a director works and those actors deliver the director's vision, is delivering a different version of that play. So where do you draw the line? And when you lock up copyright in such a literal way, as this, as is often done in this country, or worse, you know, extend it like the Copyright Term Extension Act, which took people like Fitzgerald and Wolf and Faulkner and Hemingway off the market for 20 more years just to feather the nests of those particular estates. That's just wrong. It's, it's antithetical to me to what art is supposed to do and how it's supposed to be how it's supposed to be shared. And so, yes, Mamet legally right now has that right. I don't think he should have the right. I they think did he every should. single word of the play. I mean, I mean, I, so I, I agree with you does. about the extension. Mike, about the extending the, the copyright thing. I think, you know, I, as I've said, I think once once that artist is no longer along, around, is it hurting them if someone takes a new interpretation? Like like I said, those estates should <laughs> loosen up. But yeah, absolutely. Mamet has. Yes, Mamet should have, have the legal right to say you can only do my play under these circumstances that I approve of. I personally yep. think people should stop doing his plays under those circumstances because <laughs> they're nonsense. But I but it's one of those things like, you know, I'll defend to the death your right to be wrong. I mean, he is an artist who's created art. And I think he absolutely can say you can only do it under my circumstances. I just wish more people would go pick other plays to do instead of trying to, like, fight him and try to explain to him why his, you know, uh, restrictions make no sense. Um, mm -hmm. Because, yeah, he sh it's his it's his work. He should get to decide. And we can do other right. plays if we don't like right. if we don't like his restrictions. Um, because there's so many other people who, um, you know, if, if you say it's okay to do Mammoth despite his restrictions and ignore those because we think that he's wrong, how is that not sending the message it's okay to disregard? Well, and, and I would say too, an example that Mike gave um, that, you know, that, that Mammoth wants Oleana to be white. All right. Um, or in that case, he wanted it to be a woman rather than somebody right. on the spectrum. Who, oh, who is for that, uh, sorry, yes. for Oliana, I was thinking of um, uh, Albie. Uh, what's that? You're thinking of Albie and Nick. Being... I was thinking of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf is right. what I was thinking of. At any rate, um, we we all, you know, we're here saying, well, you know, why can't they be a person of color? But imagine the play someday, the slave play that makes all people white because that's who we have in our casting pool. Do you know what I mean? That's very specific. And they get to, and the playwrights and the artists get to say how things are cast in, you know, it, and you can agree or not agree, but I, I think it is well within their rights to, to say that. Yeah. I, I'd and like to think, oh, go ahead, Jen. Well, I was just gonna say, and I, I, 
I, I really take issue with um, with producers that make the choice to move ahead with a production, knowing that they are in violation of their contract. Because mm-hmm. there's a lot of whenever something does get shut down, there's a lot of how can you do that to these kids? How can you do that to these professional artists who work so hard? How can you do that to this community theater group? You signed a contract. So you saw you saw where in the contract it said what you can and can't do. And to plead that that it's um, cruel to the artists. I mean, it is. It is unfair and terrible and heartbreaking for artists that work on this. But there are um, there are always adults involved who chose, who made a choice to not do the thing that they signed a piece of paper saying they would do. And I think that um, it's appropriate to shut that stuff down when it happens. Yeah, I mean, again, I just what I'm I, in terms of what the law is, you know, completely agreed. But as Shaw said, some see the world as it is and say, why? I see it as it never was and say, why not? And I think and there are places <laughs> where in terms of how we think about property as a concept in this country, um, as exclusive and proprietary and individualistic and is leading to, distri- you know, inadequate and unfair distributions that are that there is a tension between that and what art is supposed to be doing. And I would just, if in my world, I would draw the line differently. Would Mammoth's mm-hmm. words be something you could alter? No. Ought you to have more freedom over casting? I would, I would argue yes. In mm-hmm. the same way that you have freedom over set design, Mammoth would not be able to get away with, well, he could, I suppose, if he wanted to. But even he wouldn't tell you you have to have a chair upstage just because he says you have to have a chair upstage. Um, you know, and taken to its logical extension, we wouldn't be able to have anybody do anything except try and have an exact replica of what is in a script. And no director does that. By definition, they do not. They may, they may honor the words, but they are making all kinds of choices. And if we had a world where those kinds of choices couldn't be made, then we would not have theater in this country as we know it. Well, I think that's, I think that's less of a danger because I, don't, I think it's, it's the very rare artist who's going to pull a David Mamet and say, you can't move where the chair is, right? Most artists who work in theater understand that the good art then comes from the collaboration with the directors and the actors and the designers. And yes, you can't change the words, but you're going to use your creativity to create a new production. Um, Very few people work in the theater who are rigid in the way that, say, the Albia State is being or that David Mamet is being, um, because they know that's not what this art form is. So I, I because I don't think that that is that sort of slippery slope scenario is a, is much of a likelihood in our art form. I'd rather err on the side of saying, yep, the artists get to set where that boundary is. And again, most contracts do not say anything about you have to cast this way, you have to whatever. Most of them just say, don't change the words. Great. And then there are the rare examples that say, and here's the other things you can't change. And then do that play or don't do that play. There's plenty of other options, right? If we were suddenly in a world where every playwright was saying, you have to do every every word and every stage direction exactly the way I wrote it, it would be a different scenario. But yeah. uh, yep, that's not where we are. Thank God. Yeah. <laughs> and right. you know, we should probably right. start to, to, to wrap up because we've been, you know, this is a hot topic. But um, I, I did just want to leave us with because this delights me and also saddens me that it was necessary. Um, back to some of the work that the drama dramatist guild has been doing, because again, they're kind of the leading advocate to address these issues in our in our industry. Um, 
Back in 2019, they launched a new initiative, hashtag don't change the words. And the whole purpose (laughs) of this was to try to better educate students, educators, and the general public about copyright and how it protects artists' rights and the fact that no, you don't license a show and then just go, yeah, but I don't like this part about it. Let me write a new thing. And it's it's so it's a little depressing that that is uh, so necessary. But alas, it is so necessary. So I'm glad I'm glad there are efforts like that out there. And that is the upside to these two really not great stories recently that we started this um, episode off with this Bridgerton situation, this Hamilton situation. Hopefully they've been great platforms to better educate artists and audiences about artists' rights. Oh, this and works. that has a lot of value, mm-hmm. right? Okay. So there you go. There's our Pollyanna ending. <laughs> 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 so maybe on that note, we will say that that is it for this episode of Theater Forward, a conversation about theater in Wisconsin, the Midwest, and America. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm Jenna Poff-Gray. I'm Julie Swenson. And I'm Mike Fisher. Our podcast is produced by Scott Hayden. It is the property of Forward Theater, but we gladly <laughs> and willingly share it with everybody Don't who wants to, wants to participate. Um, so and you can you, you can follow us and enjoy that shared experience um, on Facebook um, and on Twitter. It's at Theater Forward, as always, proprietary as well, but it shouldn't be. The idea of theater always being spelled with an E-R. <laughs> <laughs> And if you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you might tune in. And please leave a comment. We would love to hear from you. We're so grateful to have you listening. And we will be back soon for another Theater Forward conversation.